Bone Knowing, a true story of coming to life in the face of impending loss. Chapter 13, Still in Chaos, April 1997. Easter has come round again. For Tom, it's probably the last revolution. We make our final debut at church with my visiting family. My parents are pleased to see that I've returned to religion after my rebellious adolescence had led me astray. Tom, with his coarse new hair growth sprouting out the sides of his African beanie, sits through the service. His eyes are closed. Energy is hard to come by, and he's saving his for a picnic down the coast. That's what Easter is about for him anyhow. Being with friends and the beauty of Big Sur and questing for the golden egg. His spiritual life is becoming interwoven with his everyday living. Any moment or activity is potentially holy, depending on what he brings to it. As we leave the church, he says a few goodbyes and closes another door. The sermon didn't impress him nearly as much as the view of Big Sur coastline does as we drive, cresting hundreds of feet above it. Now that's God at its best, huh? Yeah, I answer, distracted. I'm busy contemplating where to hide the golden egg, as I'm the honored hider from last year's find. It seems ironic that I should hide what he's been searching for over the past 16 Easters on the last occasion he'll have to try and find it. For him, it's much more than an egg enterprise. Slowly, we make our way through the old grove of giant redwoods. A swollen creek pushes itself through the dense ground cover of clover, creating a magical scene straight out of some fairy tale. At the opening of the forest is a hillside meadow where Brian and Lisa have set up the food table from two sawhorses and a piece of plywood. Tom plops himself down on a blanket to rest. Friends make their rounds to him throughout the afternoon, while Brian and I go about cleverly hiding hundreds of eggs. I'm obliged to hide the golden egg at least as well as it was hidden for me. It has to be buried, completely out of sight. The idea is to thicken the tension as time draws out with no golden egg. Most years, the hider has to revert to hot and cold clues to ease the frustration of the frantic finders. The prize is always worthy of the effort. This year, Brian has resorted to a chunk of cash as he didn't have time to pick up a prize. As much as we need that fifty bucks, I've lost my chance as hider, and it doesn't look like Tom has the energy to participate. Carefully, I place the egg in a small cavern and replace the stone without turning over new soil. Skillful, like Tom would have been if he were hiding it. Once hundreds of eggs are hidden, Brian announces the hunt. A feisty crowd makes its way to the edge of the forest, where pink vinyl tape borders the perimeter. There's nothing like an adult egg hunt to bring out the child and the monster in everyone. Tom hangs back when the tape is cut. He looks pale. Tom, come sit down, I say, taking his arm. No, I, I want to do this. I'll go slow. You sure? I ask. He nods unhurriedly. Good luck, Button. I peck him on the cheek and watch as he cautiously shuffles down the bank to the creek. The backdrop to his slow motion descent is a frenzied swarm moving amongst easy finds, snapping up spots of color as they go. Tom squats in a patch of sunlight at the edge of the water bubbling by. 
seeming more mesmerized by the flow than interested in finding anything. He plunges his hands into the creek, cupping them together and raising them to his face. Pearls of sunlit water roll down his cheeks and throat as he looks skyward. His eyes are closed as if in prayer. From where I stand, it looks like a scene from the Bible minus John the Baptist. As long as I've known him, Tom has always made his own rituals. I imagine this is his Easter ritual, some kind of rebirth to life in the course of a slow death. After a while, and I know it's been a good ten minutes because the finding troops are getting restless, having not come upon the golden egg yet, Tom edges downstream and does the same baptism routine. My heart races. He's hovering directly over the spot where I hid the golden egg. Running his hands along the moss below him, he stops to wiggle and remove a loose tooth among the stones. From where I stand, a glint of gold is visible in the gap. He sits above and can't see it. After thoroughly inspecting the rock, he begins to reset it. But something keeps it from fitting snugly. Reaching into the hole, he pulls out the golden egg. I'm smiling so hard my dimples ache. It's true that I've been telling him exactly where to go and find it, though never out loud. Nor has he looked back up the hill at me since he began his quest. I've got to wonder if this is the universe telling him his path is cleared for takeoff, or if we have become so close we are simply telepathic. No matter, he got his coveted golden egg. Tom doesn't yell out. Instead, he holds the egg to his chest and slowly ascends the bank to declare his winnings. He's quietly elated. This would look a little suspect in this highly competitive hunt if it wasn't evident to everyone he may not be here next year. When all the eggs are found and prizes distributed, the group poses for a picture. Tom stands proud with the gold egg perched just in front of his heart. Click. Another last frozen onto film. Brian won't take the egg back when it's time to go. It's yours, Tom. Please take it. Tom doesn't argue that it's the original egg of the long tradition. He seems to understand that this is how his longtime adventure buddy is going to say goodbye. Thank you, Tom says, and they hug tightly. When they finally part, neither says the standard, see you next year. On the drive up the coast, the horizon grows pink, orange, and lavender over the Pacific. I ask him, so what's your secret? Did you see me come up the bank after I hit it? No, Jen, you know I wouldn't cheat, he says. Instantly, I feel shame for doubting both him and our faith in synchronicity. Sorry, just thought with the clock ticking and all. He shakes his head in sincere wonder. Clearly, there's no offense taken. How do you think you found it? I ask. He laughs to himself. I stopped looking. Ah, so that's how it works. My husband is one frickin' good prophet lately. Who needs Caleb Gibran to answer questions when I've got Tom? If nothing else, it's a side benefit to being end stage. Needless to say, the golden egg takes its place beside his braid on the altar at home. It's a reminder of what he found once he ceased searching and settled into exactly what was in front of him. It takes a full week for Tom to recover the energy he spent on Easter. His decline is happening too fast for those outside our daily household to comprehend. 
When I show up at the wedding of our good friends without Tom, they assume he couldn't come because of an umpiring conflict. No, I tell them with a smile, trying to keep the event celebratory. His mom came down to be with him over the weekend so River and I could come. The chemos knocked him flat. Still, it doesn't sink in. Perhaps it's my smile that throws them off. Maybe they are remembering the last time they were with Tom, back when he moved in close to listen and spoke with animated gestures. Nobody wants to consider Tom can wilt, that he can be anything other than a live wire, magnetically attracting attention. I move from conversation to conversation at the reception, wishing the allotment for wine while pregnant was three or four glasses. People ask about Tom and I stumble in response, despite practicing in advance. Rehearsal lines began with the truth. I think he's going to die soon. I'm just a hair from falling apart. I hope I don't lose the baby. And ended with a less harsh silver lining version that I voted more palatable. The chemo's nailing him, but I guess it means it's doing its job. I'm hanging in there. Rivers had joy, and we're so excited about our new addition. What a miracle, huh? I'd pat my stomach, smile, hug, and move on to the next. It wouldn't be lying. It would be keeping the invisible elephant well-fed and smack in the middle of the wedding, the grocery store, my workplace, our living room, and in any other place I have to deal with talking about Tom's condition. It's ironic that it makes me crazy when other people feed this denial elephant. Yet I'm playing the same game, and I'm not sure whom it's for. When others say things like, he's a fighter, he'll be okay, or if anyone deserves a miracle, it's him, I know it's really for them. When religious folk offer promises from their position with God, like, I'll pray for him to be cancer-free, I know their intentions are good also. Nonetheless, I want to take each person by the shoulders and shake them and scream, Yes, he is a fighter, and guess what? He's not okay. And, so, if he dies from this, was he undeserving of that miracle? Or did God just not give a rat's ass? I've concluded there isn't really a right thing to say to me about Tom right now, and I've sold out to the elephant conspiracy. I'm tired of maintaining everyone else's comfort levels around illness, death, and grief. What I need most right now is good listening, sans guilt trip or judgment, beyond the one hour I get with Mary Beth every two weeks. My parents are just the people. Mom was brought up in a loving but constricted religious household. No smoking, no drinking, no dancing, no rock and roll, and no food before the blessing. The constriction stuck in that Mum had all five of us children trained to go on emergency ashtray patrol when our grandparents unexpectedly pulled up in the driveway. It had more to do with her parents' beliefs than her own, though. Mum is religious and holds her beliefs firmly, but converting people in the checkout line or even her closest friends isn't her thing. Her beliefs haven't kept her from listening. And though I won't be sharing my latest disillusionment with the daddy god with her, I know she can hear my worst fears about Tom without offering up some quick fix that's designed to shut me up. Dad, on the other hand, wouldn't bat an eyelash over my firing god. Even with his being a faithful churchman since he and my mom got together in their teens, his grip on belief seems looser, open to questioning. Though I've never heard him query aloud, let alone prompt conversation of depth on the topic, 
I've never felt an ounce of judgment from him either. Lord knows I've given him plenty of material over the years. He's got a keen sense for listening when it's really important, and now is that time. We have the four-hour drive back to Seaside from the wedding in Santa Barbara and a few days to follow for such business. My parents is still on their annual visit out west to see their three stray daughters and fading son-in-law. On the return, I ride with them, unloading, while River naps in his car seat. Dad drives, eyes on the road, nodding every so often. Mom turns to the back seat frequently with such an intense look of empathy on her face, I want to cry for me. I'm afraid if I do, I'll come undone in a tangled heap just when it's time for them to leave. When we get back to the house and relieve Stella, Tom is picking invisible knits off his skin. Stella is shaken by Tom's frailty and medication-induced disorientation. After years of imperceptible decline, things are sliding fast. None of us know whether this is a temporary result of the chemo or if he is really going down for the count. It definitely doesn't look like he'll be getting out to the ball field anytime soon. In quiet acknowledgement, Mom and Dad bring River out to the playground and come back with a full-size colored television to replace the portable black and white one with the aluminum foil antenna. Dad sets it up in our bedroom, and when Tom wakes, it's like Christmas. The ball games come to him now. Over the next couple days before they leave, Dad scoops River up and carries him every chance he gets. He bathes him and changes his diaper, something he never did with my sisters and I. And he growls, chasing River on all fours, just like he did with me at that age, and just like Tom and I did with River before I got too pregnant and Tom too sick. Mom reads to River and makes him tuna sandwiches. When Tom's oncologist reports he needs blood transfusions, Mom and Dad bring him up to the hospital and donate their blood to him. My eyes water in response to each gesture of love they offer. Their departure day comes too soon. I don't feel old enough to handle what's coming. The house is quiet, and I'm back to a slew of internal conversations that I'd like to be having with another adult. It's time. I retrieve the neatly creased paper from my journal, lock myself in the bathroom, and dial. I'm blowing my nose when a man's voice answers. Hello, is this Nick McQuay? I ask, sounding like a telemarketer. He doesn't hang up. Awkwardness and guilt for asking a stranger for advice on such a painful subject overtake me as I bumble through orienting him as to why I'm calling. And... He's pretty sick. I mean, it's not looking good. I tiptoe around the big D word. Tom is forever the optimist, so we don't talk about the potentials much. Lately, he can't even focus to have a conversation. I feel like a traitor, confiding in a stranger about Tom. A male stranger. Mmm. It's really hard, isn't it? Nick invites me into a place he knows well. Intimacy hangs over the phone line between two people who have never met. I cough, shooing it away. <clears throat> Tell me about how you managed. I shift us to the practical, afraid of falling into his lap with all of my problems. Nick speaks slowly, leaving gaping spaces which I feel obliged to fill with specific questions. What did you do for childcare while you worked? He tells me his son went to a preschool, and the half-dozen or so people who helped with Conrad while Wendy was sick are still helping. 
He hired a cook and a housekeeper as well. That gave him time to be with his family when he got home. Oh, I see, I say, realizing the difference money can make. Maybe he can't understand. Genuinely unaware of any wedge between us, he goes on, until I forget too. He talks about the leader of his men's group, how he prompted him to rally a support network for both the emotional and practical needs of his family. Fortunately, both he and his wife were involved in large overlapping social circles, resulting in an abundant list of eager helpers. Two friends, Russ and Emily, alternated orchestrating the wide range of help. How bold to ask for so much, I think. Didn't you worry you were overwhelming people? They're adults, he answers matter-of-factly, as if having boundaries correlated with the cessation of bone growth. It's up to each person to decide how much they wanted to help and how. Our job was to receive the offers, he says. Let me give you Russ's number. Ask him how it was on that end of things. I call Russ immediately after I hang up with Nick, while my courage is building momentum. Russ has a smooth, earthy voice, the kind that have women trusting him completely on the first date. He doesn't lie. It was tough. And it was long, he says. You know what? I wouldn't have traded that experience for anything. What do you mean? I ask, wanting something more to go on, something to boost my campaign for help. Being able to do something, anything, in such a tragic situation felt important, like it really mattered. And it wasn't just me. There were a bunch of us doing all sorts of things, he says. He is silent for a few moments and then continues. We hoped she'd live, but it didn't go that way. Being on board through her death was, it was intimate. I'm not sure how else to explain it. As soon as I get off the phone with Russ, I start making a list of anyone who's ever casually offered help. That's as far as I get before a stubborn streak of independence sets in and has me wait until I'm sure we're sinking before I drop the lifeboat. Simultaneously to the seemingly endless downhill swoop of Tom's health roller coaster, I've been slinking into the bowels of the hospital before making my art therapy rounds checking for the rumored posting of a full-time position as a child life specialist. It would be a ticket out of the Medi-Cal welfare system before the baby comes and Tom crashes completely. Every day that passes counts as my belly grows. I don't want the pregnancy to kill my chances, nor the chances to kill the pregnancy. The seventh time I check, it's posted and I apply immediately. For the interview, I wear a long vest to cover the gap of flesh bulging up between the linking safety pins securing my pants. I talk about the long-term vision I have for the position. Carefully, without bringing personal experience into it, I demonstrate a grasp of the issues families have while coping with illness in the medical system. Would this position work for you in your situation? Asked Linda, my potential boss. Despite her kind eyes, my guard stays up. She knows Tom is sick. Word travels at light speed in the tight circuit of hospital and hospice. You mean because my husband is sick? She nods. Well, sure, and you have a young child. 
what should have been frosting qualifications for the position, suddenly sour my candidacy, simply by way of being too close in proximity to my daily life. If only I could fast forward and this was all past tense, should be sure I'd have the wisdom from the experience without the emotional slippage. It's perfect, I say. My husband works from home so he can help with the child care. Translation, he's too sick to work right now. Our son has just started an early preschool, a.k.a. daycare that I swore I'd never send him to. He just loves it. Perfect age for socializing. Speaking of which, I had an idea for the playroom. We could have an open play for kids daily so they're not isolated in their rooms. I segue from a wishful reality to the job at hand. Truly, I believe all the advice I'd give families would be sound. Only it would be for them, not for me, the helper. Linda smiles sincerely as I shake her hand upon leaving. I'm pretty sure I have the job, unless she noticed the safety pins when I got up. Within a week, she welcomes me aboard. Two days after that, the morning I've painstakingly come to the decision to give my notice to hospice and maintain contact with Larissa as a volunteer, she calls with regrets, reporting that the funding for the position fell through. Back to square one. At three safety pins across the belly, a co-worker at hospice pulls me aside. Honey, it seems you've got something cooking. Look, I've got some great maternity dresses I've hung on to, just in case we have another. You'd look beautiful in them, and they're roomy, discreet. Lola winks, her punk model face softening with concern. Thanks, that'd be great. The burden of one less secret is lifted as I glide into the day. Nurse Jerry enters as I'm packing up my briefcase. Hey, Jennifer, how's the hubby tolerating the chemo? And put it this way, he could write a textbook on the side effects. The bald thing, though, that really does it for me, I say, winking. Kojak, oh yeah, I can get that. Just gotta tweeze the stragglers and wax the bulb, she says. Now you're talking, I call back as I head out the door, laughing past the lump in my throat. I'm getting pretty dang skilled at separating business from personal until they bleed into each other and the personal becomes a numb business plan for survival. Though it keeps me from functioning, the price of losing closeness with Tom is high. When I update people on his condition, I'm starting to sound like his social worker instead of his wife. Life is pushing me flat up against the wall to come up with other options. Larissa is showing me how. But I'm a slow learner, and time is of the essence. This has been read to you by the author, Jennifer Allen. Copyright 2009.